everybody. Anne-Louise Gittleman here, back with the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, where I interview all of the biggest nutritional stars in the industry. And today I have one that I think you're going to really, really enjoy. His name is Dr. David Watts, and he has more credentials than almost anybody that I've interviewed. He's one of the top biochemists in the country and is also the co founder of Trace Elements, Inc., which he established in 1984, which is a federally licensed clinical laboratory specializing in trace mineral hair analysis. So welcome to you, Dr. David Watts. Thank you. Thank you for, being, uh, for having me. Okay, so let's, let's just jump into the far end of the pool. Why is hair analysis so important in, the, in this day and time? Why is hair analysis better than a blood test for heavy metals? Well, it, it, it will show us the uh, uh, indications for an accumulation over time, uh, whereas the blood will just show us uh, what may have, a person may have been exposed to uh, just a short time ago. But you can be exposed to lead from several years ago, and it can still be in the body, which will manifest uh, in the hair analysis test, where it may not show up at all in the blood test. So how accurate is a tissue mineral analysis? You know, people will say they've sent the same lock of hair to three different, uh, three different hair analysis laboratories and sometimes get three different results. How accurate is your tissue mineral analysis? Well, it's extremely accurate. And uh, many of those uh, have been misinterpreted uh, when they send a, a sample to two or three different laboratories. They don't understand the difference in the reporting of those different uh, results. Some labs report in parts per million, we report in milligrams per cent. And so it's a factor of, of, of 10. So if someone reported a calcium uh, from one lab of 170, uh, that would be actually you know, 17 milligrams per cent. So that's a lot of the confusion. And then the other uh, instance, they could uh, improperly, improperly uh, separate those samples and uh, use long hair on one, one test and shorter hair on another test. And that would, of course, uh, provide some skewing of the data. But uh, overall, uh, there should not be that much of a difference. And we don't really find that much of a difference, um, uh, in, except you know, when the sample's not taken properly or uh, it's, it's using a different uh, laboratory technique in reporting uh, interface. So I was looking over your marvelous credentials, and they're quite impressive, to say the very least, Dr. David Watts. But what I'm interested in knowing is how you became involved with hair analysis. What made you get into the business in the first place? Well, I was in nutrition, you know, for many, many years. And uh, I used to, you know, follow all the great uh, nutritionists back in the day. You know them all as well. I'm sure Adele Davis and Carlton Fredericks and so forth. And um, and so I was really uh, interested in how nutrition could help people. And, uh, but I would, I would use uh, nutrition and, and I saw, you know, in different cases and I saw some people would get better, some would get worse, some wouldn't respond at all. So I thought, well, you know, it's not individualized enough. We need a test to be able to tell us specifically how we can target that individual's need, not based on their symptoms, however, you know, because, you know, we, we found through hair analysis research you know, that there's a dozen different uh, patterns associated with uh, developing diabetes. So you can't treat a, uh, a person as a diabetic. You have to treat that individual who has diabetes and pinpoint their needs and therefore 
you can get a greater, you know, better response than uh, just sort of shotgunning it or giving them all the nutrients and expecting them to use, you know, what nutrients they can and eliminate what they, they don't. And then, of course, minerals are, are more important than, than, than the vitamins because minerals are uh, enzyme activators and vitamins act uh, in concert with minerals, but they're, you know, uh, cofactors. And so the minerals are really, you know, the, the things that have to be corrected for everything else to be utilized, including proteins, carbohydrates, sugars, and so on. So you're, you're making a point that I think is really well taken. You can actually analyze patterns of health or patterns of health that may be leading to some kind of disease early on. So what do you particularly see with diabetes, for example, with heart disease would be another one, and even Alzheimer's, if you can just briefly tell me. And I think this is a good time to let all of my listeners know that this podcast is sponsored by UnikiHealth.com. And Unikey Health has been my go-to distributor for over 25 years. They actually offer hair analysis through your company, and we do so with a private consultation as well for those that are in need. So thank you, Unikey Health, and let's proceed. Patterns of health, Dr. Watts. Well, let's just uh, use uh, diabetes as an example. You know, you have um, adult-onset diabetic conditions, uh, which is called, you know, type 2 diabetes. You have... um, uh, infantile or, or juvenile diabetes called type 1 diabetes. Now, those are two different causes, you know, or patterns associated with that, with, with, with diabetes, right? One, however, uh, the type 1 is uh, typically found in children who don't produce insulin, whereas the type 2 diabetic uh, patient, you know, adult onset, uh, they actually have an overabundance of insulin, but they're just not utilizing it. And then uh, what we have to do then is analyze or look at the mineral patterns and see why they're not uh, utilizing that insulin properly on the cellular level. And that can be any number of things. That could be, you know, excessive copper levels, zinc deficiencies, chromium deficiencies, and so on. And so uh, that just gives you an example of the many aspects of, 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 uh, that we find in diabetic patients. And in cardiovascular patients, we typically see that in our fast metabolic types, you know, the sympathetic types, if you're familiar with, maybe some of the listeners aren't, but it just means a person who has a overactive um, uh, metabolic activity and therefore their blood pressure can go up just as a result of that. And that's typically associated with uh, severe magnesium deficiencies. Magnesium is known to, you know, be related to hypertension and can uh, obviously uh, uh, diminish under stress. And then the stress causes high blood pressure and then the stress causes the loss of magnesium and the lack of magnesium actually enhances the stress response. So it's like a vicious circle there that needs to be stopped. But the other probably major cause, you know, for another type of diabetes is uh, the metabolic syndrome. And uh, this is associated, again, with a fast metabolic pattern. But the most common factor that we find in those individuals is severe copper deficiency. And when there's a copper deficiency, there's an increase in uh, lipid peroxidation and uh, tendency toward atherosclerotic conditions and increased fat uh, circulating in the blood. And they have uh, insulin antagonism rather than insulin resistance. And so one of the major factors contributing to that uh, copper deficiency in those people uh, frequently has been with supplement intake, taking too much of something that would antagonize copper, like too much zinc or too much niacin. Those both antagonize copper, but the biggest food antagonist of copper is uh, fructose. 
And so many people consuming high amounts of fructose are actually contributing to copper deficit and then contributing to uh, not only um, the metabolic syndrome, but also uh, cardiovascular disease. And tell me what you're seeing, or perhaps you're, you haven't noted. We're getting so many people with autoimmune illnesses, whether it's MS or lupus or ALS, and then, of course, there's the dreaded Alzheimer's. Are you seeing any early indicators that could be red flags for these types of illnesses? Oh, absolutely. We have categorized many illnesses you know, into these metabolic categories. And so, you know, the, the most common um, uh, overactive immune response or autoimmune condition is seen, or it's seen in women more commonly than males, right, by a factor of like seven to one. And so that's typically seen in your slow metabolic uh, individuals, which largely uh, make up the uh, population of women, you know, compared to men who are fast metabolic types. And so they have um, uh, hyperactive immune systems uh, that's actually producing harm to the body rather than protecting themselves from uh, the condition that they have. And these can be triggered by mineral imbalances, and they can be triggered by other illnesses, coexisting illnesses, such as a, a viral condition. Uh, many times we've seen uh, autoimmune responses triggered by a virus, and uh, they never knew they had it. Uh, it could be underlying, uh, subclinical, and uh, contributing to an uh, overactive immune response. And um, as far as Alzheimer's, you know, one of the main things that we see with that is stress. You know, it's stress-related. Uh, typically a hyperactive adrenal cortical activity. And, and when that happens, you know, the stress hormones being so high for so long, they'll become quite destructive rather than helpful. And uh, that is a, another type of a autoimmune response, and, which is seen in the fast metabolic types. And um, the stress uh, hormones being so high for so long leads to brain shrinkage and then the, uh, you know, the, the neurofibrillary angles and uh, amyloid plaques in the brain, and that, that can be a major contributor. Of course, other mineral deficiencies can too, uh, like a copper deficiency. Copper, you know, is necessary for normal neurological functioning, particularly, you know, myelinization of the, uh, of the nerve fibers, and uh, it's also, it also impacts, you know, your dopamine levels and so forth, and so many people with copper deficiencies also have a corresponding uh, relationship to um, conditions like uh, uh, Parkinson's disease, you know, which is related to dopamine imbalances, which is related to a copper deficiency because, because copper is necessary for, you know, productive dopamine. So it's looking to me like many of these minerals, Dr. Watts, and this is a loaded question, which I know you're very qualified to answer. Many of these minerals act as double-edged swords. Oh, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, like I say, uh, it, the minerals, uh, they do work together. Uh, and pairs, but they, in excess, they can become antagonistic to each other. And that's where if somebody is taking a supplement or a vitamin or a mineral, you know, they could be doing more harm to themselves than good if they don't have some type of a roadmap showing them what they need to target and what they need to give up. You know, many times the mineral analysis can be used to tell a person what they shouldn't be doing rather than what they should be doing. And many times when we uh, get them off of supplements that are uh, detrimental to them, they do a lot better, you know, without even supplementing the things they need. Interesting. Interesting. And and I also want to bring this to your attention because I found this very interesting. I was approached by a very... 
I'd say avant-garde researcher, Dr. George Brewer, I don't know if you're familiar with him, at the University of Michigan, and he had noted an article that I did. It was a lay article on the dangers of copper and hyperactivity among women. And he's been doing some interesting research correlating Alzheimer's with the introduction of copper pipes in the homes of Americans during the early 20th century. So he's a believer that we need to actually filter our water to protect against this particular inorganic copper, but he's also against taking copper supplementation and believes that the only kind of copper we should be taking is from food sources. What do you believe about that? Well, I, I think he's right. The uh, majority of the uh, population, you know, fall within that uh, slow metabolic category. About 75, 70% of the U.S. population, you know, can be considered uh, in the slow metabolic category. The other 30% are fast metabolic types. So the majority of people, yes, they should not be taking copper arbitrarily. And yes, you know, the copper pipes have been a, a major contributor, you know, to uh, the copper accumulation that people have. And it's not so much that they take in more copper uh, than others, but the problem can be that they can't eliminate it properly. And it will build up in the body, even though they may be taking less than, or, or consuming less than someone else does, you know. So that's the major factor, and the main eliminated uh, organ, you know, is through the liver uh, for copper. And as copper builds up in the liver, it causes a reduction in liver function, and it also causes stasis uh, of the gallbladder, so there's not complete emptying. This is why many women you know, we get high copper due to high estrogens as well, will, you know, will, will cause an accumulation. If they're taking it in from the water pipes, their estrogen levels are high, then they're going to retain a lot more. And, and when, when that stasis occurs in the gallbladder, that's why women have such an uh, increased incidence of gallstones compared to men. And it's so common uh, for that to occur following a pregnancy when copper levels uh, naturally rise, you know, during pregnancy. Interesting. So what would one do? I've seen a lot of copperheads when I analyze the hair analysis that we get from unikeyhealth.com. And I would say perhaps 60 to 70% of all the people that do hair analysis from the female population are very copper toxic. And I don't know if that's the correct word. There's a copper dysregulation. Perhaps that's more appropriate. So what would you recommend for those individuals, either who have high estrogen or high copper? Yeah, I'd like to call it a copper burden uh, because, you know, the... Uh, copper burden, I have to quote you on that. That's good. <laughs> only because, you know, uh, we, you know, you can have elevated levels that are not a toxicity per se because that's, that's more of a, you know, severe term like you would have to have immediate attention to that. And it's not like we're talking about Wilson's disease where they have, you know, buildup of copper in the liver and the brain to the point that they're having, you know, severe disturbances. So we're talking about, in general, uh, populations having... Uh, an, an increased burden uh, of copper from, from all the sources you mentioned. And uh, obviously, one of the first things uh, that we need to do is to uh, look at their diet and make sure they're not consuming a lot of uh, high copper foods. And, you know, one of those is soy products. And, you know, how soy was promoted some years ago, you know, for uh, its action, you know, it's, it was being a type of steroid. But uh, they failed to look at that uh, copper level in the same copper ratio. And so we'd want to increase foods, you know, that would uh, uh, reduce copper burden, like uh, high zinc foods. And then, of course, anything else that lowers copper from a supplement standpoint would be beneficial, you know, such as copper. Uh, I'm sorry, such as vitamin C, uh, vitamin A, uh, niacin. And, molybdenum. Uh, and I love the molybdenum. And molybdenum, yeah. And uh and also, you know, that brings up a good point, you know, with a molybdenum deficiency, 
there's an inability you know, for the body to detox. So the other thing that I'm finding with, with copper and this connection that we're seeing with all of these diseases is that a lot of the foods that people are veering towards, the plant-based foods, are also exceptionally high in copper, very low in zinc. And I'm looking at avocados. I don't think people are as engaged with soy anymore. I think soy has gotten a pretty bad rap these days. But certainly avocado, nuts, and seeds are using nut flours instead of gluten-rich flours. They're using a lot of coconut. They're using a lot of sunflower seeds, a lot of cashews. They're all exceedingly high sources of copper, as well as tea. Could you speak to that a little bit? As far as tea? Yeah, tea being a source of copper. I'm not aware of that. Yes, many of the black teas, the green teas, the white teas are sources of copper as well as fluoride, which I think is an interesting combination. But something that I also think would be important to bring up is that in, in a lot of my interviews that I've done with some of the autoimmune docs, they say that mercury is a big deal when it comes to autoimmunity. Have you seen that to be true? Oh, yeah, that's one factor. Uh, it's not uncommon, you know, when you have those uh, extreme slow metabolic patterns, particularly those people with high copper, it's either metabolic rate is markedly reduced for a number of reasons. You know, one is their metabolic rate is low because of the high copper, because copper also suppresses, you know, liver function, and it also suppresses thyroid function and so forth. So they have, have a, um, a very low metabolic rate. And, and I think, you know, regarding the tea that you mentioned earlier, See, the fluoride in there is a, is a big significant factor uh, in slowing down that metabolic rate as well and the ability for the body to actually, you know, detox itself. Yes, and I have suspected for many years that this increase in the green teas, the black teas, and the white teas that are out there, particularly the green teas, is one of the reasons that so many people are hypothyroid. So what else are you seeing with hypothyroid particularly? We're seeing a burden of copper, perhaps, and mercury. Are there any other heavy metals that are getting stuck in the thyroid? Yes, and I forgot to mention the mercury part of that that you uh, were, were saying earlier, alluded to earlier. Uh, the mercury um, is uh, not uncommonly elevated in people with uh, low thyroid and high copper levels. And it uh, seems like those two go, go together frequently. And so it's very difficult to ever get that mercury out until they get to get the copper low. But uh, other things can contribute to uh, low thyroid activity, you know, such as elevated calcium levels. Uh, oh, that's a big, let's talk about that. People, yes. don't, people just do not realize. So you, something that I have learned from you, and I believe Dr. Watts, that we both studied with Paul Eck many, many moons ago. Am I correct in assuming that? Yes, huh? Paul and I worked together. Okay, so I am correct. So I learned many years ago, because he was such a kind of a genius in the, in the field of minerals, many years ahead of his time, that calcium had a slowing effect on the thyroid, whereas potassium had an enhanced metabolic effect. Am I correct in assuming that? Is that still true today? Oh, yes, it certainly is. So let's talk about the calcium conundrum, because I'm one of those individuals that actually needs a little more calcium, my very low blood calcium, which is also a signal for uh, sensitivity to electromagnetic fields, which I've just learned. So I'm kind of hypocalcium. But for those that have too much calcium, what can it signal in the body? What is the dangers of a, of a high calcium content? A high calcium burden, excuse me, I'm using your new terminology. Uh, well, as calcium builds up in the body, uh, to excessive amounts, then it disturbs the relationship between its synergistic or, or cofactors. 
like uh, phosphorus, for example. See, calcium and phosphorus work together, correct? You know, I mean, they're necessary in the proper balance to build strong bones and teeth. But if the calcium gets markedly elevated relative to phosphorus, then uh, one of the, the factors contributing that that will, that, will, that will contribute to is osteoporosis. They'll start losing bone density. They'll start losing uh, dental uh, integrity. And uh, uh, because of that antagonism to, to phosphorus, and so, but many people for decades, you know, particularly women of a certain age, they'll be put on calcium as a knee-jerk reaction because, oh, you're in your 50s and you're a female, you need to start taking calcium. And many of those people start developing hypothyroidism from taking all that calcium. And then they're treated, you know, with thyroid support and they rarely respond uh, until they stop taking the calcium supplementation. Uh, and so... But uh, calcium also, you know, uh, antagonizes other minerals such as uh, uh, iron. And, uh, and iron deficiency is associated with low thyroid, fatigue, depression. Well, the symptoms are very, very, very similar. And so uh, also an excess calcium level, you know, if it's uh, acquainted with a, a magnesium deficiency, will cause, start causing calcium deposition in the soft tissue. And so when it, you know, builds up to the point that it's in the skin, itself, you get an increased uh, layer of dry skin, wrinkle skin, and uh, poor hair texture, and so on. But, but obviously, it can build up in joints, uh, lymph nodes, and arteries. So uh, it has been linked, all the calcium supplementation over the past decades have been linked to increase uh, uh, calcification of, of arteries in females. But didn't you also once write, and you have a book. Tell me the name of that book. It's a wonderful little blue book. What, what is the name of that for my listeners? Trace Elements and Other Essential Nutrients. Is that still on the market? Yes. Huh? Oh, excellent. And where can people get that book? At traceelements.com or Trace Element Labs. Excellent. I just wanted to, to give you that, that honor because it was such a wonderful little booklet and still very apropos today. But didn't you once write, perhaps it was there that I read it, that high calcium is also a signal for high virus? Yes. Uh, calcium, uh, see, it is associated with uh, viral conditions, uh, people with underlying viruses and so forth. And it's been found that, you know, when they take a dormant virus and they put it into a medium, and they subject that to increased amounts of calcium, then the dormancy of the virus, uh, start, they start becoming active and start proliferating, okay? But then when they lower the calcium concentration, the viruses go back to being uh, dormant again. And so uh, anything that would reduce calcium, or I should say, first of all, anything that raises calcium can increase uh, viral susceptibility. And most people with viruses have high tissue calcium levels, okay? So it goes together. And so uh, the environment for the virus is, is there. And uh, until you bring that calcium down, there's always going to be that potential. And uh, the most common viruses that we see with people with very high copper levels are like cytomegalovirus viruses um, and uh, EBD, Epstein-Barr viruses. And of course, as you know, those viruses are contributing to a lot of conditions that we've seen in the last couple of decades that we rarely saw before such as chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. So calcium, excess calcium contributes to those things as well. And so reducing calcium uh, would help to reduce the uh, viral susceptibility. And what's a mineral that, that is antagonistic to uh, the calcium? Well, phosphorus is, obviously, right? 
And so, and then also magnesium. Yes, the two, the two biggies, the yep. dynamic duo. Yeah, magnesium helps to uh, uh, reduce or improve calcium utilization. Uh, and with a magnesium deficiency, uh, even if you take an abundance of calcium, you never can replenish the bone stores uh, unless that magnesium is uh, replaced first. So are we seeing, we're in the age of virus, certainly. So this is extremely relevant. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic and, and we may be seeing new viruses coming down the pike very soon. So what should people watch out for? So, that, so as, as, a, as a general rule of thumb, they should decrease their calcium supplementation to maybe 500 milligrams a day or better still get most of their calcium directly just from food. Would you suggest that as a number one uh, strategy? Yes, in general, since 70% since you know, of the population uh, are, are in that slow metabolic category, that would be a, a good generalized uh, thing to say is that they should get it from their food sources and not necessarily be taking, you know, a calcium supplement. So that, all right, so then that would mean your fermented foods, if you can tolerate them. I love the yogurt particularly. Um, I, I like even a little bit of cheese. A little bit of cheese goes a long way. A low-fat, maybe cheddar would go a long way. Low-fat Swiss because of the high uh, AGE, advanced glycation, end product source that you can get in some of these foods. So that would be very helpful. Now, what about it? What about increasing K2 to help in the uh, targeting of the calcium? So it goes into the bones and teeth rather than the soft tissue. Yeah, that should help with, uh, you know, as a synergist with, uh, with magnesium. So gas K2 would uh, be beneficial. What are you seeing particularly? And I'm just wondering if you've seen what I see. I have a lot of clients these days that are being diagnosed with lupus. Do you see any particular metabolic patterns with a lupus patient? Yes, typically uh, you would you would see uh, uh, lupus, scleroderma. Uh, you know, again, that's the most common uh, autoimmune condition that occurs in female, most commonly, and you see that with uh, your typical slow metabolic patterns. And so, what would that mean in terms of minerals? Well, they would have uh, you know high tissue calcium levels, and again, uh, you know, uh, many of these conditions um, you know are triggered. Uh, it could be genetic, obviously, but it could be triggered by an underlying virus. Uh, we've had people who have had uh, multiple sclerosis-like symptoms, and uh, typically uh, you would see that in a fast metabolic type with low copper levels, but we saw several who had MS symptoms, and they were slow metabolic type with this very high tissue calcium level, and we found that they had an underlying viral condition because they had the high copper coexisting with it in the low zinc copper ratio, and uh, and and they responded so dramatically with therapy, you know, a true MS condition wouldn't respond that rapidly, but these people respond very quickly and uh, by giving supplements to reduce the calcium and to uh, reduce the copper and so forth. And uh, well, what we found were, was uh, they had developed a, uh, or, or contracted a virus, and then the virus uh, ble- uh, breached the uh, blood-brain barrier, and that started producing the uh, uh, multiple sclerosis-like symptoms. So do you think or there could be a viral component to Alzheimer's, or is that in addition to a heavy metal load from aluminum, from mercury, or copper? Yeah, it could be uh, uh, any of those. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think, I think if I were to uh, categorize 
Alzheimer's, you know, we see that commonly in fast metabolic types. Uh, oh, no, that's know. interesting. Fast metabolic types. Yeah, and, 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 you know, they're the ones with the copper deficiency, low dopamine levels, and, and the uh, high uh, glucocorticoids causing, you know, a lot of the brain shrinkage and disturbances. Um, but aluminum certainly is a factor, you know, there is a dementia. You know, over in Guam, you know, that is related to high aluminum levels in the water. And, um, and so, um, the, um, the, the, as you mentioned, too, copper is a neurotoxin. I'm sorry, uh, uh, mercury is a neurotoxin. And that can certainly, you know, contribute to a lot of neurological symptoms as well. So with the Dr. Brewer information, I'm just trying to make sense of this. He's, he's seen the, the uh, Alzheimer's increase with the use of copper pipes. So that would then make a lot of the copper bio unavailable, thereby increasing the likelihood of a copper deficiency. How would that jive? Well, I, I think that depends on the person. You know, uh, uh, you know I have to go by the, the millions of tests that I've looked at, you know, from the urinal standpoint. And I don't know exactly what test he used to to come up with his um, his conclusions. There. He so, used some of the he used to, he he took a look at the epidemiology of the people in some of the other countries where they instituted copper pipes early on, and it seemed to correlate with the increase of Alzheimer's. And so his hypothesis there was that there was a lot of inorganic copper which was in not able to be used in the system and therefore contributed to a copper toxicity or rather a copper burden. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, Anne-Louise, I, I don't know. I couldn't speak to uh, those conclusions based upon the, the mineral analysis. So what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to allude to is that if you have an excess of any of these minerals that can misbehave, so to speak, because they can, they can go either way, they're a double-edged sword, they can contribute to a, a deficiency. In other words, if they're bio-unavailable, then they're not, if, if, if they're not organic, they become bio-unavailable is what I'm trying to say. I think the same thing can be true of iron, for example. Well, yeah, iron, uh, can certainly excess iron uh, can cause neurological symptoms too, you know, particularly we see that and people with uh, ALS, you know, interesting, you know, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Interestingly, you know, the, the other name is Lou Gehrig, and, and of course he would call the Iron Man. And uh, we have found that association because it, it accumulates in areas of the brain uh, and it can cause aggression and uh, motor disturbances. So that's uh, iron, you're saying? Iron toxicity or iron burden? Right, excess iron. And uh, where is that? And, and how does one, is that, a, is that a genetic predisposition? How does one start absorbing too much iron? Well, uh, well yes, it can be genetic, obviously, but uh, it can be related to the copper deficiency. You know, in other words, when you have a deficiency of copper, then you have a bioavailability of iron. You can't reincorporate it back into hemoglobin and the red cells that are being produced. So it goes somewhere. So it goes into soft tissue storage, right? And uh, when it goes into the brain in excess amounts, then uh, it affects, you know, those two areas of, of motor control and, and, and um, emotions and the amygdala and the substantia nigra, and it can cause aggression as well. So many people, just with a simple copper deficiency that they may have had all their lives and it, and it, it was exacerbated, then their iron will start building up over time, especially, you know, if they're consuming, you know, from uh, high iron foods, cooking in iron skillets, drinking high iron water, uh, those, those factors will contribute to uh, build up 
of uh, excessive iron, and that's associated with cardiovascular disease, arthritic, migraine headaches. Uh, a lot of a lot of symptoms can come from excess iron. So you're alluding to something very interesting, Dr. Watts, and that is that there's an antagonistic relationship between many of the minerals. So you've spoken about copper and zinc, for example, iron and uh, copper. Are there any other ones we should be mindful of? Oh, yes. Uh, well, sodium and potassium uh, are two. And then, uh, of course, you know, zinc, copper, calcium, phosphorus. And then uh, there's others that, you know, we'll discover as we go along, you know, some of the other elements, you know, that we test for, you know, the additional elements, you know, like, uh, you know, strontium goes with calcium and uh, rubidium goes with potassium and so forth. But, you know, that's, that's an area I don't guess we need to discuss right now. It gets a little complicated. So when you do your tissue mineral analysis, I want to move into the uh, analysis itself. When I see a readout from unikeyhealth.com on a hair analysis for a client, you actually measure different ratios. Can you explain what that means and what that alludes to? Is there a glandular connection with those ratios? Oh, yeah. Uh, see, that's, uh, I guess that's one thing we could say about you know, uh, the mineral patterns, you know, uh, it's not simply uh, a reflection of diet. You know, uh, what controls those minerals are, is the neuroendocrine system. So a person can eat a lot of uh, food with high concentrations of certain minerals in it, uh, but yet they won't retain it because of their metabolic characteristics and the, uh, you know, the endocrine uh, component of, of that control. So the, the mineral levels uh, are controlled by the neuroendocrine system and the ratios, the important ratios between those minerals have to be maintained for optimum health and so yes we can we can see the uh, reflection for example if you just look at sodium and potassium those two minerals they work together they typically go up and down together and one's high the other's high one's low the other's low but when that ratio gets out of balance let's say the normal sodium potassium ratio should be around two and a half to one but let's say you have a sodium to potassium of 10 to one in other words the sodium is 10 times higher than your potassium well that gives an indication that there's an acute stress response going on, highly possible, an inflammatory condition going on somewhere in the body. And then a low sodium to potassium ratio, say it gets down to less than one to one, uh, that can be related to um, a, a kidney issue, uh, as well as a hormonal issue, excessive uh, stress hormones or anti-inflammatory hormones. And then Seeking copper, you know, gives us an indication, a pretty good indication of a person's uh, hormonal status from the standpoint of in females. You know, we can look at that relative to the progesterone and uh, estrogen relationship or balance. And then in a male, the zinc would represent, you know, testosterone because you have to have, uh, you know, zinc is necessary for testosterone production. And of course, that's related to progesterone production in a female. And then copper is influenced by estrogen. And I'm not saying that copper produces estrogen, but estrogen influences copper. So when we see a, a low zinc copper or a high excess copper, that can be related to high estrogen from a, you know, uh, from an, uh, naturally occurring, you know, say following pregnancy in a young woman, uh, or it could be related to, uh, you know, estrogen birth controls, and or it could be related to estrogen, uh, copper content coming from uh, intrauterine devices such as the CU7, which is a copper wire wound around plastic and inserted. And uh, it's estimated that 20 to 30 milligrams, uh, that is absorbed per year. So uh, if a woman has an excess copper and they can't seem to get that down and they have an IUD, that needs to be replaced with some other form of uh, inner urine device. 
So we see an inordinate amount, the imbalances that I see most of all in my practice and among my followers have to do with thyroid. Nothing pulls the way a thyroid post does. So tell me about the mineral imbalances that you typically see in a hypothyroid individual versus a hyperthyroid person. Well, the major thing we see, as we mentioned earlier, uh, how calcium is an antagonist you know, to, the, uh, to the thyroid expression. Uh, it's also an antagonist to potassium. So we typically see a very high calcium to potassium ratio. The normal ideal ratio there is around uh, four, four to one. But we see people with uh, 20, 30, 40 to one. And that's, a, that's indicating a pretty, pretty strong hypothyroid condition. So again, it's the calcium. Could it also be a deficiency of potassium? Yes, and or selenium. You know, selenium is uh, important for uh, thyroid function as well. And uh, if it's related to a high copper level, uh, then it could be an autoimmune condition, you know, or, or uh, Hashimoto's. So we see an inordinate amount of all of this in this day and age. Is there something that you think has changed in the environment that's skewing some of these hair analysis results? And are you seeing different patterns of health today in 2020 than you saw maybe 10 years ago? You know, I think in general, you could say that in ways. And I think a lot of that, uh, obviously, is, is diet. You know, uh, how much is changing, how much fast food we have, and that type of thing. But I think also, it's, it's probably probably related to the medications that people are on. I think uh, I read a statistic, and this was some years ago, you know, people over 50 in general in the, in the U.S., they're taking an average of two to three medications. And then when it gets to 60, uh, age 60 and above, you know, these people are taking an average of uh, four to eight uh, medications. And those would impact, you know, a person's nutritional status quite uh, severely. And, and uh, uh, many people, you know, many people that are taking medications and that their, their nutritional aspect isn't even being uh, thought about, you know, from that perspective. Interesting. I never even thought of it that way. Do you see any, any more aluminum? You know, there's some thought that there's quite a lot of nano aluminum that's coming down from the air. Are you seeing more aluminum these days, more uranium these days? Well, uh, not so much in general now, uh, because, you know, we do tests all over the world, obviously. And, uh, but in the U.S., you know, we do see areas of pockets, geographic uh, areas where uh, this group will have higher levels of certain elements than others. For example, uh, with uranium, you know, we see that in the rocky uh, granite areas of the U.S. And, uh, you know, for example, in Maine, and, um, uh, but even in the, in the mountainous areas of California, too, we see much higher levels of uranium. And so um, compared to someone living in Florida or, or Texas, or, you know, for example. Now, and you can get high uranium levels uh, in the water supply, you know, from um, uh, agricultural runoffs uh, as well. But uh, the, the main issue with uh, excess uranium is uh, when we see that in a person, we suggest they have their home tested for radon because uranium, you know, ultimately uh, deteriorates it, uh, it breaks down to thorium and then break, breaks down to uh, uh, rad radium, which gets off the radon gas. And we know that radon gas is certainly associated with cardiac, you know, cancers and so forth. And so that's why I think anyone should have their home tested for radon uh, if they, even if they, you know, if they have a high uranium in the area. But let's say, for example, you know, all these granite uh, 
granite uh, counters uh, tops, <laughs> tops on the you know the the homes you know many people fill a home with granite you 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 just wonder if they might have want to have a, a radon test to, you know just to rule out that those are not uh, uh, transmitting sealed. yes transmitting radon no. Interesting. I live in the Pacific Northwest. We have an inordinately high uh, radon level here. I had to actually remediate my home, Dr. Watts, because of that. So I'm very attuned to it. We've, we've also found uranium in our water. Right. It's commonly found in the water. We've, we've found that too. Uh, we've, we've had many cases where we've told uh, you know, people from their test results that they should have a radon test done and they actually found high radon. And obviously, you can remediate it, though. And then even if it's in the water supply, there's adequate filtration that can uh, remove the, uh, the uranium from the water, you know, at its source, particularly if it's a well. So when one does a hair analysis, and we're just about ready to wrap up, one takes, is it one or two tablespoons of hair from the nape of the neck, and why the nape of the neck? Well, we uh, suggest them that actually from, uh, you know, the vertex, uh, you know, just above the ears all the way back to the nape, and from several different areas, so you get a representative sample. Oh. Uh, you know, and then also is to hide any uh, uh, cosmetic, you know, uh, uh, you know, you don't want to scalp someone and leave a hole uh, in their hair. Uh, so uh, that's the other reason for taking it from the mate. Is it one or two tablespoons? It's only one. Oh, so it's just a small amount of hair. So it's one tablespoon. And how frequently should one do follow-ups? Because you can't always see sequestered heavy metals that the body is so efficient at storing away to protect you. So shouldn't somebody do a baseline hair analysis, so to speak, and then two to three months later, if they suspect a heavy metal burden, take another hair analysis until you actually find what's being sequestered by the body? Yes, exactly. You, uh, you know, from the the first test that a person has, and if you put them on a therapeutic regime, you know, to, to address that pattern or imbalance that they have, you'd want to follow up at least uh, three months, uh, and, and sometimes sooner, depending on the severity of the pattern, the age of the person, and so forth. And uh, and then you want to compare the two, look at changes that have occurred, those that haven't occurred, and then make the modifications accordingly. Because these mineral patterns are like peeling an onion, you know, as we've said. Uh, you go to layer to layer to layer, and some things can show up that weren't there initially. So you typically find that after the second or third go-around? In other words, you wait two to three months, and it's about two to three hair analysis later that you see something? Because I do. I never see anything on the first go-around. Yeah, that's possible. Huh? You may not see it for, you know, uh, after the second or third test. Yeah. All right, to, to wrap up just a little bit, is there anything else that people should know about why hair analysis is a much better barometer of your health than some of the other testing that's out there? What else do you have to say about this wonderful methodology, which is so non-invasive and relatively inexpensive? That's exact, exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I read the script. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic test. It is extremely economical, and uh, it gets us so much data, you know, from this one, you know, one sample. I mean, we're looking at 30-something elements, and you can't get that anywhere. You couldn't do those in the blood, uh, you know, because it would be prohibitively expensive. And uh, in knowing the relationship between, you know, minerals and vitamins, you can discern, you know, a vitamin need right along with the mineral, uh, you know, if you know the cofactors. 
It's so true, and that's why I'm so grateful that Unikey Health Systems at UnikeyHealth.com has been offering your tissue mineral analysis as long as they've been in business, because I have been a spokesperson for this wonderful group, and it has actually been the, the test which I think kind of saved my sanity. I was diagnosed many years ago as a copper toxic or copper overburdened individual. And it's taken about 10 years to really get that in tow. So I have to thank you for all the wonderful work that you've been doing. I thank my sponsor, Unikey Health Systems at unikeyhealth.com. And I want to invite all of you to visit annlouise.com for more wonderful podcasts, articles, and videos. So we'll see you next time on the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, my friends. Be well and thank you again, Dr. Watts. Mm-hmm.